We're in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's our text. Our topic, by faith, a Hebrew mother puts her baby boy in a waterproofed basket and places him in the reeds of the Nile River. The title of our message, Don't Worry, Baby. <laughs> Everything will turn out all right. See, you knew it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. Uh, Lord, remind us that it's history. This really happened, Lord, as uh, unusual as it seems. And it happened just this way to show us some amazing things so that you could encourage and embolden us in our own walk with you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I believe in a lot of astrology, said pop megastar Katy Perry in an interview in GQ. Evidence suggests that over 90% of adults know their zodiac signs. Surveys also indicate that well over half agree that the signs' character descriptions are accurate. According to data from the National Science Foundation's 2014 Science and Engineering Indicators Study, the percentage of Americans who think astrology is not scientific declined from 62% in 2010 to just 55% in 2012. Interest in spirituality has been booming in recent years, while interest in religion plummets, especially among millennials. The percentage of people between the ages of 18 and 29 who never doubt the existence of God fell from 81% in 20, uh, 2007 to 67% in 2012. Meanwhile, more than half of young adults in the U.S. believe astrology is a science compared to less than 8% of the Chinese public. The psychic services industry, which includes astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card reading, and palmistry, among other metaphysical services, grew 2% between 2011 and 2016. That may sound, not sound like much, but it's now worth $2 billion annually. The median annual wage for a fortune teller is just under $44,000 a year. That works out to just over $21 an hour for the nearly 16,000 fortune tellers in the United States. Now, these folks don't know the future. We know someone who does know the future. Greg Laurie is the first person I ever heard say, I may not know what the future holds for me, but I know the one who holds my future. Rather than crack open a fortune cookie there at Panda Express, you can live for Jesus by faith, trusting your future to God. I got to thinking about all this because in our verses this morning, we see God's hold on the future as he preserves the life of Moses. Egypt's Pharaoh had decreed the death of all male Hebrew babies, but the most powerful man on earth was no match for the foreknowledge and the providence of God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, let your faith be encouraged by God's foreknowledge. Number two, let your faith be emboldened by God's providence. Let's take a look at foreknowledge in verses 1 through 4. God knew that Pharaoh's daughter would be bathing on a certain day at a certain time in a certain location, and he used that knowledge to preserve a baby that had been placed in a basket. It should come as no great shock to you that God knows the future. We call his knowledge of the future foreknowledge, to know beforehand. All Christians agree that God has advanced knowledge of future events and circumstances. Christians disagree on exactly how God's foreknowledge works, especially when it comes to the free will of human beings and God holding us individually responsible for all of our actions. 
Some say his foreknowledge is based on foreordination. I don't want to misrepresent them, but their position is that God knows exactly what is going to happen because he has ordained, he has determined that it will happen. While they argue that you have free will, you're only free to choose what God has already ordained will happen. Others see foreknowledge differently. A theologian I like, Henry Thiessen, puts it like this. He says, foreknowledge is not causative. We must not confuse foreknowledge with the predeterminate will of God. Free actions do not take place because they are foreseen, but they are foreseen because they will take place. Does any of this matter? Well, let's see how these two views on foreknowledge affect our understanding of the gospel. Those who believe God's foreknowledge causes things to take place, say salvation uh, of some men, excuse me, say of salvation, that some men are thereby predestined to eternal life, while others are just as predestined to perish eternally. This is called double predestination, whereby your eternal destiny to heaven or hell was already chosen for you by God in eternity past. Those who believe God's foreknowledge does not cause things to take place say God genuinely offers salvation to everyone and that he foresees who will freely respond positively to his gracious offer of salvation and the enablement he provides to accept it. Now I've just scratched the surface of a huge topic that we're never going to fully resolve this side of eternity. Let me emphasize that. There is no final resolution to this in the sense that one theology is completely wrong uh, and unbiblical. It's important that you realize both approaches to God's foreknowledge are biblically based. You can believe either one or something in between. My question to those who favor a view of foreknowledge in which God predestines people to eternal punishment with no hope of ever responding to the gospel would be, why would you want to believe something like that since there is a totally biblical alternative. If you're going to choose to believe in something, choose to believe the one that shows God as a compassionate, loving God, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Now, we can get so caught up arguing about God's foreknowledge and how it works that it no longer is an encouragement for us. And indeed, as soon as the topic comes up, we get locked into theological battles, but it should encourage you to realize God knows the future. You don't need to know exactly how it all works to be excited about the fact that your God, the God of the universe, knows the future. Since he does, you can trust him right now and the things that he is leading you into. The situation in Egypt surrounding the birth of Moses provides a great illustration of God's foreknowledge. He could lead a Hebrew mom into what to do, and she could trust him, even though what she did seemed absurd. And so verse 1, a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. Later on, we're going to learn that the man's name was Amram and the wife's Jochebed. Their baby's going to be named Moses by Pharaoh's daughter. There's a Jewish tradition that his real name was Tov, T-O-V, meaning good. We'll also learn that they had two other children previously, Tav's older siblings, a girl named Miriam and a boy named Aaron. They had no advanced preparation that their child was going to be Israel's deliverer. Many Old Testament parents did have visits from angels or from prophets telling them about their baby boy. Samson's parents come to mind. The angel of the Lord visited them with information about the baby and how he was to be raised. He was to be a Nazarite from his mother's womb. No such info or instruction was given to Amram and Jacobed. 
This tells me I should simply go about my spiritual life depending upon the Lord, trusting in his leading. If I need a supernatural visit, he'll see to it, but it isn't a prerequisite for serving him. I can be encouraged God knows the future without him revealing any of it to me. And so God chose to reveal the future to some parents in the Old Testament, but to Amram and Jacobed, he did not, and they trusted him still, and it's a great lesson for us. Just trust the Lord. Verse two, so the woman conceived and bore a son, when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. All babies are beautiful, even the ones that aren't. <laughs> so what does it mean that Jacobed's son was beautiful? Well, I don't know, except she must have realized that there was something special about him. Now, of course, every mom thought their little baby boy was special, but in her case, he was. Her hiding him reminds us of the awful situation the Hebrews faced. Pharaoh, incited, I'd say, by Satan, had ordered the midwives to kill all the male Hebrew babies. When that yielded no result, he decreed to his own people that they should cast any Hebrew baby boy they saw into the Nile River. The text doesn't say, but I think we can assume that the Egyptian authorities went door to door looking for baby boys to drown. I mean, we know human nature. And, and this would be certainly uh, within what they would, the scope of what they were doing, especially since they had enslaved the Jews and set cruel taskmasters over them. Human nature being what it is, it is an unthinkable that fellow Hebrews turned in their neighbors for some small material gain. You know, it's kind of hard to hide a pregnancy and it's harder still to hide a newborn baby. How do you do that? How do you keep him from giving himself away by crying? What's it like to live knowing any minute the authorities could crash the door and take your precious baby boy? How awful was it to hear the wailing of moms and dads whose babies were taken away to be drowned? Now, I don't accentuate these details to elicit a, a visceral response, although it should. I do it because I think we can too quickly overlook the terror and the horror of living on this earth. I mean, we, we want to focus on what God did in preserving Moses and the miraculous story that that is, but behind it is this absolute darkness where babies by the thousands probably are being murdered, mothers and fathers crying, more than one family wondering where is God in all this? The answer is that he was right there in their midst working to deliver them. His plan involved this baby growing up and confronting Pharaoh. God's plan has been unfolding for about 6,000 years now. We can be sure that it isn't taking a moment longer than is necessary. Think of it this way. Looking at all the religions and all the philosophies that men have suggested over the years, do any of them solve the problem of human suffering? They do not, and they cannot because they have no solution for the problem of sin. God's plan eradicates sin and will restore all things, but it takes time. People, you know, like to blame God and say, oh, where is God and why doesn't he do something? What's your alternative? Buddhism, Hinduism? How about existential philosophy? You know what the, I've told you many times before, you know what the end of existential philosophy is? You should kill yourself because there's no reason to live or not live. Life is absurd, there's no meaning. But somehow there's something in you that thinks maybe I don't want to kill myself. Maybe I can, you know, do something good even though there is no good or evil. 
Philosophy is a maze of nonsense. The religions of the world, none of them offer a God who became man and died in your place so that you could be free from sin and Satan and death and live forever. And the fact that this plan, because it involves stubborn, insubordinate human beings, has taken 6,000 years is not God's fault. It's an, it's an incredible plan, and it's taking just as long as it needs to from the time he promised in the garden to come to the time he came as Jesus Christ, the God-man, deity taking on humanity to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And he's coming again. And we know the end of the story. We read the last book of the Bible and we see that he will have redeemed and restored his lost creation. When she could no longer hide him, verse 3, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jochebed was led by God in this endeavor because it doesn't seem as though other moms were launching their babies into the reeds. Uh, they uh, were not following this as a regular strategy. This was something new. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Miriam is estimated to be in her early teen years. Her surveillance might indicate that the family was hoping their baby would be found and cared for. There was no guarantee he wouldn't be a crocodile snack. There was a lot to put on a young person. I think we should expect more from our youth. I'm not saying we shouldn't shelter them from the world when we can, but there are times they need to step up and serve the Lord. I mean, let's say she's 14, just to throw out a number. It's a lot to put on her to watch her little baby brother in that ark in the reeds, not knowing what's going to happen. It, I'm not saying it just to be dramatic, but he could just as easily be eaten by a crocodile or taken out of the water by a Hebrew or a, a, an Egyptian soldier or guard going by and drowned. Uh, and, and so that was asking a lot of her, but uh, they did it anyway. And so trust the next generation, especially those who claim Christ. Give them responsibility and put them to work. Now we're going to see in the next set of verses what God foreknew. But Jochebed didn't foresee anything. She was operating entirely by faith. Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, we're told, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and that they were not afraid of the king's command. Building his little ark, placing it in the reeds, these were acts of faith. Amram and Jochebed had no assurances that their baby boy would survive. As I said earlier, it's an absolutely absurd plan. Could you imagine them at dinner that one night? Honey, we can't hide him any longer. What are we going to do? I have an idea. I believe the Lord is leading me in it. We're going to build a little ark and waterproof it and put him in the reeds and wait to see what happens. Right. That's, a, that's, that's really going to work. But they did it. By faith, they trusted in God's foreknowledge. He saw the future. He would preserve the baby. All they had to do was obey. Faith in God's foreknowledge doesn't always mean we experience a positive outcome. Over the years, many believers have shared with me that God came to them in a verse or in a dream or by some strong inner impression to comfort them just days or weeks before some personal tragedy struck. It was to comfort them in the sorrow that God foresaw. I want to spend another few moments on this, especially addressing those who are enduring afflictions and struggles. It may not seem all that encouraging that God foreknew your trouble and didn't help you avoid it. See, that's what we always want. 
We want God to foresee what's coming and say, I dodged that bullet, got out of that accident. That disease isn't going to find me. That's our hope and our prayer. But I think of the Apostle Paul. When Paul was saved there in Damascus, Ananias came to him and told him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God foresaw his beatings and his stonings and his imprisonments and his shipwrecks. He foresaw the Judaizers dogging Paul's footsteps and believers who would mistreat him and abandon him. Life is hard and the Christian life can be harder still. Whether you're experiencing a time of triumph or tragedy, it should be encouraging to understand that God knows the future. You need to walk towards it by faith in the good times, but especially in the bad. Verses 5 through 10, let your faith be emboldened by God's providence. Providence is a word that doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible, but it is taught everywhere. For our purposes, providence means the continuous activity of God whereby he sees to it that nothing can thwart his plan to redeem and restore his creation and especially the human race. Now, we've touched on this last week and again briefly a moment ago, but in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve exercised their free will and they disobeyed God's one command. Their sin brought death into God's perfect creation. We say that all creation is now fallen. We're told, in fact, in the book of Romans, because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors until now. And so everything is fallen. It's not in the state that God had originally intended. It's because he had to give Adam and Eve free will. Without free will, there's no free choice. Without free choice, there can't be any love. You can't create a being that loves you freely, who is determined to love you. It, it just can't happen. But because they chose badly, everything was ruined. But God immediately, I mean immediately, came into the garden and confronted the situation and said, I have a plan. It's a remarkable plan, but it involves suffering. And God said that he would come and that he would be the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head while his own heel was bruised. And we see the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross for us as he took our place. Ever since that promise was made in the garden, God has been working in and through human history to fulfill that plan. He provides for that plan, seeing to it that nothing and no one can thwart it. And so every time it seems like that plan is dead, all of a sudden, the world is full of Nephilim. The human DNA is corrupting. God says, I'm going to stop this right now and provide for my plan. He saves eight people in all, sends the global flood, starts over with Noah. And all of history can be understood as God preserving this plan so that the human race can be redeemed and so that creation can be restored. The son of Amram and Jochebed was part of that plan in that God would come into our world born of the nation of Israel. Thus the Hebrews must be delivered from Egypt and this baby is the one who would do it. Verse five, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and her maidens walked along the riverside and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. God foresaw this and by it he would provide for his plan to redeem. The timing is incredible, it was no coincidence. God was at work. At the same time, there was no guarantee, humanly speaking, that Pharaoh's daughter would be favorable to the Hebrew baby. 
After all, the Egyptians were commanded to murder them, not to nurture them. And she, above all, as the daughter of Pharaoh, without exaggerating this entire fate, uh, the entire fate of God's eternal plan to redeem and restore creation, including the human race, was going to depend on Pharaoh's daughter discovering and defending a cast-off baby. I keep thinking of this from the point of view of a strategy session in heaven. You get the angels. The angels are powerful beings that have attitude. They, you, when, when they come and they do God's bidding and people challenge them, they say, oh, man, you're going to wish you hadn't said that. Zechariah, you're going to be a mute now until John the Baptist is born. I mean, they, they get into it. And so I can see them ready for their assignment. God comes out and he goes, I've got a plan. Here we go. I'm going to impress upon Jochebed and Amram to build a little ark and cover it with pitch and make it waterproof and put this little baby in the reeds. Pharaoh's daughter is going to see it and be moved with compassion and raise it as her own. What do you guys think? That's insane. I don't think he'd actually say that to God, but you'd think it. I mean, it's an insane plan. We know it so well. I mean, we've seen the Ten Commandments every Easter since, you know, we were born. But uh, we, we know this plan so well, and we think, wow, that's fantastic. It's stupid. It's absurd. It's unrealistic. There's nothing about it that makes sense. And yet God says, I'm going to provide for the entire history of the human race this way. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Commentators speculate it's because the baby was circumcised that she knew for sure he was Hebrew. And so I can only wonder if one of the angels was dispatched to pinch the baby at just the right time. Maybe the angel who objected to the plan said, that's not going to work. He says, hey, I have, a, I have a place for you in this plan. I want you to hang around in the reeds, keep the crocodiles away, until the baby is found, and then when she sees him for the first time, pinch him. He has to cry just on cue, and he does. He cried. She had compassion. Until now, the only impression you had of Egypt was that of Pharaoh. He was a madman ordering the slaughter of babies, yet in his own household was a daughter who was filled with compassion. It's great to be raised in a Christian home, but if you're not, you can still find and follow Jesus. It may seem to be a disadvantage, but it need not be. Now, I'm not saying the daughter of Pharaoh was a Christian. I'm using the situation as an illustration. She certainly was not like her dad. She didn't look at that baby and say, oh, great. I get to drown a Hebrew baby now. My dad will be so proud of me. I'll do it at home in the wash basin. No, she's, she has compassion. She's totally filled with compassion. How do you get raised with compassion when your father is Hitler? I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. So if you're in a bad situation, expand this to any bad situation that you're in. Don't blame it on your situation. Trust the Lord. Walk with the Lord. He can encourage you. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? What's the first thing you do when you discover an abandoned baby and it's crying? Well, I know every time that's happened to me, I've wondered if it was hungry. Miriam's presence wasn't seen as being suspicious. Could be that the Hebrew children were regularly present along the Nile. At any rate, she was inspired to suggest a solution to the baby's need for feeding a nurse from the Hebrew women. Now, by the way, you'll read some commentators or hear some studies where 
because of certain details, they say, well, they planned this. And the reason they say they planned it is because it's such an absurd plan and they don't want to admit that God would have such an absurd plan. It seems, it seems like God is smarter than this, more powerful than this, but that's the whole point of this part of the story. God wants to reveal His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His kindness, and, and He can do it through the weakest, basest elements in our society. He doesn't need to send armies. He, he works in these amazing ways. And so I'm telling you who wasn't smart enough to think of this, Amram and Jacobed, but who was, and that was our God who sits on the throne and orders these events for his glory and our good. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Unbelievable. Who could have predicted this turn of events? This just keeps getting better and better. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. I will pay you. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Ladies, wouldn't you like to be paid for raising your kids? I recommended this first service. I think it's a good idea. When your, children, or when your child turns 18, let's say, on your 18th birthday, when they start thinking that they're really you know, grown up, present them with the bill. You could be writing it out. Forget journaling and writing diaries. Just add up what you did for your kids every day. It'll be like, it'll fill up discs. And then get, put a price on it. Two, three, four million dollars. Tell them it's like a student loan. <laughs> that you'll pay it back. You don't even want interest. Just pay it back monthly. It's a freak out, but you know. Now, I know you're happy to raise your kids for nothing, but what a bonus that would be if you could get paid for it. Now, most of this weaning must have taken place in the Hebrew home. With her dad's insane decree to murder boy babies still in effect, Pharaoh's daughter must have arranged for this baby boy to be protected. That's great, but again, think about it. As Jacobed was suckling her baby boy and as he was cooing and burping and they're changing his diaper, right next door, some Hebrew mom had lost her baby to the violence of Egypt. Did the other Hebrew families look upon this baby as a representative of God's mercy and miracle to save? Or were they bitter and resentful that their own baby was killed? I'm sure it cut both ways, but I would guess the majority, not understanding that much about God, um, were bitter and resentful. It wasn't easy to be Amram and Jacobin, not at all not when the decree was in effect and not for years afterwards and maybe not ever afterwards the child grew and she brought him to pharaoh's daughter and he became her son so she called his name moses saying because i drew him out of the water pharaoh's daughter must have had regular visits with moses during the three years or so we estimate that he was being breastfed I can't imagine she saw him for a few minutes the day he was found and then not again for maybe two or three years. That, that doesn't make sense. They must have had visits and regular contact. And it seems that they went through some sort of formal adoption since Moses is going to grow up as her son as an Egyptian. And we'll talk about it more next week as well. But at some point in the midst of this miraculous story, Jacobet has to give up her son to be raised in Egypt. And so there's a lot of human emotion and drama and suffering surrounding this story. While Moses was growing up, 
God was at work providing for his plan of redemption and restoration in other ways. In Genesis 15, the Lord told Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted there for 400 years. So God told Abraham before there was a nation of Israel that in the future they were going to be subject, it turns out, to Egyptian bondage and that it would last about 400 years. And so he foresaw that, but he used what he foresaw to provide for his plan. Because you read on in Genesis, it says, I'll bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's interesting. God would accomplish two things on account of Israel's servitude in Egypt. First, he would use them to judge the wickedness of Egypt and to spoil them. We'll see Egypt's gods destroyed one by one as God brings ten plagues against them. When the Israelites left Egypt following the 10th plague, they were told to ask the Egyptians for items of value for their journey, and the Egyptians gave them all kinds of riches. And so God had foreseen that, and he provided for them as a new nation uh, as they were leaving. Second, God was waiting for the Amorites. Now, these were a people occupying the promised land, and God was waiting for their iniquity to become full. I would interpret that to mean God was giving them time to repent and turn to him before he had to destroy them. God was being long-suffering with them, not willing that they would perish. And he said, I'm going to give them 400 years. That's a long time, but God is a long-suffering God. So yes, Israel suffered greatly for 400 years in Egypt, but God had already foreseen it. And the result of it was that God used them to judge two wicked nations and to spoil one of their wealth and take it for themselves. Also because of Israel's time in Egypt, you get to thinking about what other things uh, can you attribute to Israel's time in Egypt? Well, we have the story of Joseph, another amazing tale of God's foresight and providence. We have the Passover, which becomes the great type of God sacrificing himself on the cross for the sin of the world. We have tale after tale of God's faithfulness in leading and guiding his people to the promised land. Take away their sojourn of suffering in Egypt and you lose many powerful images of the suffering of Jesus Christ. You know, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. Egypt is a type of the world. And there's all of these amazing things that we take for granted as illustrations and types. They require that Israel be in the land for 400 years, in Egypt rather, for 400 years in bondage. Looking back, any believing Jew would say it was all worth it in order that God might be better able to communicate the gospel to those who are perishing. Everything that we get from the Exodus story makes it worth it that they suffered. The lashes of the taskmasters, even the murder of the babies, are not as eternally significant as even one soul receiving Jesus Christ and avoiding the horrors of the lake of fire. Now, that's not something you could ever say to a person who is in grief. You don't go to people and say, oh, your grief is it's real, but it's not as important as God's long-suffering. They need to come to that conclusion themselves. It's not the time for it. You need to just, you know what you do with people who are grieving? You grieve with them. You weep with them. Later on, you can rejoice with them. But the truth is, stepping back in an atmosphere like this, we can talk about this. 
the fact that Israel suffered, the Jews suffered for 400 years, cruelly, terribly. We, I mean, I'm drawing out all kinds of cruelties here. Not as significant as eternal life. Because those who were believers, for them to die was gain. And so if you look at the world and you think, man, the world's a terrible place where I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer and die. And that is a gain to you if you're a believer. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so God's plan, it's working itself out. I, for one, love the story of Joseph. I love the story of Moses. I love the wandering in the wilderness. All of these things help me today. God could have just rained, you know, destruction down on Egypt. But we all know what happens when kids are spoiled, right? None of you have ever raised a spoiled child. I, I know that. That's one of the prerequisites for coming to Calvary Hanford. But God doesn't, you know, he was moving and, 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 and creating and, and developing this nation of Israel, and it all works together for good. Israel's 400 years in Egypt are a little picture of the bigger picture we're always talking about. God is not willing any should perish, but that all would receive eternal life. In his long suffering, he waited 400 years for Egypt and for the Amorites, and in his long suffering, his chosen ones suffered along with the rest of the world on account of mankind's sin. But God had a purpose in it. Are you willing to suffer so that God can save more people for eternity? That's actually a better way of describing the problem of suffering and the continuing presence of evil in the world. Apostle Paul once went so far as to say, I could wish I myself were accursed from Jesus for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. In other words, he said, if I could switch place with Jews who are perishing, that they might have eternal life and I go to hell, I would glad, gladly do it. There's somebody who understands the long-suffering of God. God's long-suffering waits and the waiting always hurts because we live in a world dominated by sin and Satan. We see Jacobed emboldened in her faith. It's one thing to have faith. It's another to put your baby in a basket and believe God will provide for him. Our faith can be emboldened as we understand God's providence. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? If you're not, then Jesus is looking to save you. His long-suffering has waited this long to save you. And so you know that this morning. You know that if your heart belongs to Jesus or not, if you've ever surrendered your life. If you haven't, do it now. Maybe you're backslidden as a Christian. You're not really living for the Lord. Hey, um, it's not a time to be messing around. And it's not good for you. It's not good for the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit's been working on your heart. Just repent. Turn away from your sin. You hate your sin anyway. Ask the Lord to, to restore you, and he will. He'll look at you the way he looked at the woman caught in adultery and say, go and sin no more, giving you the power 